If you have your Bible, chapter 8, if you would, we'll be in Luke chapter 8, and we will begin in verse 26 in just a moment. Luke chapter 8 and verse 26. And um, if you've been following along with this, you'll remember that Luke has been, um, has been showing us the holiness and the authority of Jesus. Now, last time we looked at this, we saw uh, Jesus calm a storm. You remember the focus of that account was not so much to reassure us that as his children, that God would be with us in the storms of our life. That is a true statement, but that is not the focus of the account. The focus of the account, the whole reason that, um, that the, the, the text is given to us is to tell us what, not, not what we can expect, but rather to tell us what Jesus is like. And so uh, we, we have that event. It tells us about Jesus' uh, authority over the natural world. And today we're going to see <coughs> excuse me, his authority over the supernatural world, in particular the demonic forces. So uh, if you found Luke chapter 8, I know you just got sit down, but go ahead and stand with me if you're able to. In honor of God's word, we'll pick up in verse 26 and we'll read down to verse uh, 39. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed by, with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him, and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he, was, and he was bound with chains and shackles, and kept under guard, and yet would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. When Jesus asked him, and, and Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there, were, uh, of, now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. And the man who, from whom the demons had gone, uh, from gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, but he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe the great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Thank you. May be seated. <clears throat> Now, there are a few things I want to draw out of this text, actually four things. And the first is I want you to see that this was a purposeful visit. It was a purposeful visit. Now, we didn't read the text today, but if you look up in your Bible, and hopefully you brought your Bibles and still have it open, if you look up in verse uh, 22, you'll see that, that, this all, that, that this happens just after the calming of the storm. And so what happens in verse 22, Jesus has been teaching the people, and he says to the disciples, let's go out and go to the other side of the lake. Now notice he doesn't say where he's going. He doesn't say why he's going there. He just says, let's go to the other side. And that's all that he told him. Now this man knew, and Matthew actually tells us 
that there were two men, two demon-possessed men, not just one. Uh, Mark and Luke focus on just, uh, on just this man, so evidently he was the one who was the more, uh, the more severe case. Maybe he was the, the one who spoke of the two. But, uh, but, but there were two men that came to Jesus. Jesus knew that these men were there. He knew that he was going to meet them when he got off the boat. He knew that they needed the Lord to intervene. Now, Jesus, uh, God, still operates this way, doesn't he? He doesn't tell us the end destination. He doesn't tell us uh, why we're doing a certain thing. He doesn't tell us he may have us in a certain place or a certain position. And he doesn't tell us why or, or, or the reason behind many of these things. He just says, this is the next step. This is the next step. And what happens many times is, is and, and we'll never know the whole, um, the whole will of God, but many times as we're looking ahead, it's hard to, it's hard to figure out what God's doing. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've been led to a certain job or, or you've been stuck in a certain job and you're like, oh, I, I can't understand why God has not opened the doors for some other opportunity. But then as we look back over our shoulder, we can see what the will of God has been. And, and, and one of my favorite examples of this comes from my own life, partially because I was part of it. And so it's, it's, very, uh, it's very meaningful to me. It's very personal to me. Because I used to work, uh, Scarlett and I went to school up at Bolivar, up at SBU, and um, we, we lived up there. I had a job up there. She's older than I am, which I love to mention her once in a while, especially because her birthday's coming up. Um, but she, she graduated before I did. And so we moved down to Bolivar because she had a job, in, or moved down to Republic because she had a job in Monette. So I still go into to school up in Bolivar. I still had a job up in Bolivar. I graduated, but I still driving from Republic to Bolivar, and I was making seven-something an hour. And it doesn't take very long for uh, a, a trip from Republic to Bolivar every single day to start to add up. And so I, but I began to wonder, why on earth has God not opened the door for something, for another job, for, for a church? I mean, that's what my degree was in, was pastoral ministry. And, and I know that the churches always need a pastor. And, and I, I waited, and, and I, I'd put out feelers and sent out my, my resume and different things, and no jobs had opened, no churches had, had called, nothing. But through God's timing, because of that job and because of somebody that Scarlett knew, I ended up getting a job at Republic. And from that job, I ended up getting a job at New Covenant Academy and, and on to Springfield Public Schools, where I'm currently at. Also in the midst of all that, um, I was living in Republic. We began going to a church in Republic, Calvary Baptist. I became friends with a, uh, one of the ministers there, Denny Marr, and he's still on staff there, still serves. Turns out, just by chance, he played football with Hubert Conway, who is the director of mission here in Lawrence County, played football with his son. And so he knew Hubert. He knew that I was looking for a church, passed my resume on to Hubert. Hubert passed on to New Hope. And here we are. And it's, I, I look at that, and when I was going through it all, I was, I was confused. I, God, God didn't say, Jeff, here's what's going to happen. He's going to blow your socks off. He, he didn't say any of that. He didn't, tell, he didn't, he didn't uh, lay it all out before me. He just said, this is the next step. This is the next step. These are the doors that are open. These are the doors that close. And looking back over my shoulder, I can see where God was leading. And it's kind of like that here. Jesus has a divine appointment with this man. He doesn't tell the disciples, hey, we're going to go over here. On the way, you're going to have a storm. I'm going to teach you some stuff about me in the midst of that storm. And we're going to get there, and I'm going to do this work. All he did was said, let's go. So we have a 
a, a purposeful visit. The next thing I want you to see is this man's pitiful condition. A pitiful condition. Now, each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this event, and they all record little details that the other ones leave out. Now, when you look at this man and, and the description that Luke gives, and I'll pull in some other texts uh, about him, notice how he's described, and, and notice just the pitiful condition this man's in. Look first at verse 27. It says that he was possessed by demons. Now, these demons were literally driving this man insane. He was a tortured soul. Next, it says that he was not only possessed by demons, verse 27 says that he was also naked. He spent his days and nights exposed to the elements. He didn't have anything to keep him warm at night. He didn't have any kind of a cloak or or robe or anything to take off to to make into a pillow at night. He, He couldn't lay his head down on anything soft. He didn't have any means of any kind of modesty. Verse 27 goes on to say not only was he demon-possessed, not only was he naked and, and, and had been that way for some time, uh, he wasn't living in a house, but actually among the tombs. So, so here we have this man, again, no bathing, no haircuts, no, no, no hair, nail trimming, no bed. I mean, he, he, he's a filthy, nasty mess. And not only, not only all that, he didn't even have a home to live in. He lived among the tombs. Now, now many times, again, we read our, our experience into the Bible many times. And so you may be thinking of in your mind about some beautiful cemetery that you've seen. The grass is all green. It's all nicely trimmed and manicured. There are nice, pretty shade trees out there. And we look at that and we say, well, I wouldn't want to live there, but that's pretty. But that, remember, that's not, that's not the context here. This is an arid, dry, desert land. And on top of that, they didn't have cemeteries like we have. They would bury their dead in, in tombs, or and not in tombs, well, they would in tombs, but, but their tombs would be caves many times. And so they'd either be a cave or maybe a, a, a room dug into the side of a, a rock face. And so there would be this big open room, and they would take the body and, and just and lay it out. And in that hot summer heat, that body would decompose fairly quickly, the skeleton would be left, and they, the family would go back at a later date, collect all the bones, put it in a stone box called an ossuary, and put that ossuary up. They'd usually have little shelves carved into the, into the cave walls. And so they put their, their you know, grandma up here. They put dad up here. They put whoever it was up on uh, these shelves. And so this man was evidently living among and probably in these tombs that had skeletons, filled with skeletons. Maybe he'd even spent time in some of these tombs that had a decomposing body in it. And I just want you to think about that. Just picture this in your mind. Because, I mean, you, you go out in summertime, and, and, and I mean, we're, we're all country folk. You, you, you smell a possum being hit on the side of the road, and it gets all bloated and nasty and, and stinky. That's the kind of environment this man was living in day in and day out. And, and and he was, he was surrounded by death, decomposing corpses. Matthew 8 records all this as well. Again, like I said, he records that there were two men. And he says that they were so violent that nobody could pass that way without getting attacked. So you, you can imagine the reputation this area had because these families would go to try and maybe collect the bones of, of their loved ones. They'd maybe go to pay their respects to, to whatever it was, maybe at some, the anniversary of somebody's death or whatever it was. And they would go to see you know, whatever family member it was his tomb, and these men would attack them. They, they, would, they would be walking just in that area, and they would be getting 
they would have violence perpetrated upon them by these demon-possessed men. Mark 5 tells us that constantly, day and night, this man was screaming and cutting himself with rocks. So again, just imagine, I mean, even if you're, even if you're giving that area a wide berth, you don't want, you don't want the, the, the demon-possessed men to attack you. But you're walking along, you're still hearing these men out in, out in the tombs screaming and howling and shrieking. Maybe as you walk along you see, you see fresh blood in the dust where this man had cut himself and had run from one place to another. This man was in a pitiful, pitiful condition. On top of all that, he was four times unclean. Here's what I mean. Verse 29 says he was possessed by an unclean, or a group of unclean spirits. Number two, verse 27 says he lived among the tombs. Now, in, in the Jewish culture, not only was a dead body ceremonially unclean, if you touched the dead body, you were unclean for a certain period of time, but everything that that dead body touched was unclean. And so the, the, uh, the, the, the beer that it was carried on, the body was carried on, like you remember the widow's son was being carried out, and Jesus touched that, that platform, that, that beer that he was being carried on, Normally, he would become unclean. But because of who Jesus is, he didn't become unclean. It became clean. Anyway, so, so, so they saw the tombs because it was filled with dead men's bones as being an unclean area. Uh, verse 32, or verse 26, says that he lived, uh, or sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 26 says that he lived in a Gentile region. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly. But that whole area, the Gerasenes, the Gadarenes, that's part of the Decapolis area. There were ten cities. They, they didn't belong to any particular country. But there were Roman, um, it, it was a Gentile area. There were Roman garrisons there. And so it was, it was thoroughly Gentile. And the Jews saw the Gentiles as being unclean. They wouldn't even go through Gentile territory if they could help it. And then verse 32 says that he lived around or near a herd of swine. Now what are swine? Pigs, hogs, and this this herd of swine. Mark tells us was about two thousand pigs. That's a, that's a lot of pigs. And so this man is is in an unclean area, lives around unclean animals. He has unclean spirits indwelling him. He is in a terrible, pitiful state. And when this when when, when Jesus comes to shore, this man approaches Jesus, everybody else he would have attacked, but this man, what did he do? He saw Jesus, he cries out and prostrates himself before the Lord. Now briefly, before we move on, I want you to look at verse 29. This man had what you might call a, a, a superhuman strength because of this possession. He'd been guarded uh, by, by individuals, he'd been chained, he'd been shackled. And in the midst of that, when this, when this possession manifested itself, he was so strong and so fierce that he not only broke these bonds, but he overpowered the people who were guarding him. He would attack them. And, and, and here this man was incredibly violent. Nobody could come near him without being attacked. And yet the mere presence of Jesus, he didn't have to say a word. The mere presence of Jesus, what did he do? Animated by this demonic horde that was possessing him, this man sees the Lord of glory and falls at his feet in worship, in, in, in adoration, at the very least, in submission. There wasn't a battle. There wasn't a struggle. 
They, they, weren't, they weren't equals battling it out to see who get the upper hand. There was no hand-to-hand combat. There was no judo, jiu-jitsu, karate, taekwondo. There wasn't any of that stuff. Jesus showed up. The, man, the, the demons recognized who he was and bowed before him. It shows his, his holiness, his sovereignty, his power. Next, I want you to see a puzzling interaction. We've had a, 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 a purposeful visit, a pitiful condition. Now I want you to see a puzzling interaction. Usually when we read of demonic possession in the New Testament, we read of a demon. When you read about Mary Magdalene, oftentimes she's not just described as Mary Magdalene, but what does it say about her? You remember? It says she had seven demons that had been cast out. And yet, look at this man. Jesus asks his name, and what does he say? My name is Legion, for we are many. Or Luke says, because many had, had possessed him. Now, a legion, you may remember this from a few weeks ago when we looked at this. A legion was the largest group within the Roman army. It consisted of anywhere between as few as 3,000 men, but usually ranged in the five to 6,000 men range. And so he says, my name is Legion. The word legion came to be used to speak just a, a very large number of something. It didn't have to be a specific, you know, 6,000, but it was something, a, a very large number of something. So this man is indwelt by many, many demons. Many, possibly thousands of demons. Now that in itself is unique among the gospel accounts, but something else is strange is the conversation. Because in all the other encounters, Jesus would, would, uh, would be, approach a demon-possessed person, they would approach him, and there would be a, kind of a one-side conversation. The demon would, would cry out, you know, what have we to do with each other, uh, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, or, or something like that, or I know who you are, you're the, you're the Son of God, or, or something like that. There wasn't a dialogue. Jesus may, they may say that, Jesus would tell them to be still, cast him out, and that was the end of it. But if you look at this, there's, there's pleading, there's, there, there's, there's begging, there's a conversation. And what makes it even more puzzling is that Jesus, and this, this may make you scratch your head if you think about it, Jesus gives the demons what they ask for. Did you notice that? Because they say, please, they, they beg him, don't send us to the abyss. Don't begin to torture us before it's time. Don't, don't begin to torture us and punish us. And Jesus gives them what they request. So what do we make of that? Because frankly, I wrestled with this. Because it made me scratch my head. Why? Well, a couple of points to remember. Number one, because I think, well, why didn't he just wipe them out? Why didn't he just cast them into the abyss, begin to, to judge them, punish them, all that stuff? Well, in all the other incidents where Jesus casts out demons, he doesn't consign them to the abyss either, does he? The Bible says they'll cast them out, but he, he, he does, they're still awaiting their final destiny. He doesn't begin to cast down his wrath upon them. So in that sense, this is not different from the other incidents. But second, and I think the key for all this about why Jesus did what he did is actually found in Matthew's Gospel. Because Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29 says this, And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Now, this is a Hebrew idiom, which basically, the, 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 the thrust of it is, nothing good is going to come out of our interaction. Why, why this, this is not good for me, is what he's saying. 
So what business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? And here's the key phrase, before the time. Before the time. And that seems to be the key. See, the devil and all the demonic forces that work alongside him, they know their final destiny. They know what awaits them in the end. There's a day coming that's spoken about in, in the book of Revelation where they are confined to the abyss. The, the, the word that's used here has the idea of bottomlessness. And the Bible says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. And one day they will suffer eternal torment day and night for the wickedness that they've done. But that day has not yet come. And so, and, and many times, just like here, we want Jesus, we want God to do it right now. Whatever it is. We want Jesus to act in this way. We want, we want God to intervene right now in our way, on our timetable, not His. But this was not the time. And, and again, we see this truth acted out every day. Because there's still evil in the world. Have you ever noticed that some people try to use evil in the world as a, an argument against God? They say, well, if God really exists, why doesn't he just wipe out evil? And what they don't realize is if he did, they wouldn't be there asking the question because they'd be wiped out too. See, one day all these wrongs are going to be made right. Sin's going to be judged. And each person will be recompensed according to his or her work. But that day's not yet come. And see, this is why I make an appeal each week to, to turn from sin and to trust in Christ for salvation. Because there is a day appointed when you and I and everybody else is going to stand before God. There will be no escape. There will be no, no, no pleading. You can plead, but it's not going to do any good. There's not going to be any bargaining. There's not going to be any will. That's true, but... The books will be opened, and everybody will be judged according to righteousness. Our final destiny is not determined when we stand before God. Our final, the, 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 our final destiny is determined at the point of death. Because at the point of death, what we've decided to do with Jesus or against Jesus, either we accept Him and, and, and who He is for our salvation, or we reject Him to our eternal torment, in, in agony, that is all finalized when we die. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, you and I need an advocate with God. And the Bible says there's one advocate, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So while you have today, would you believe on Jesus? If you've never done that, I pray that you do. Because there is a day coming when all of us will stand before God. But back to the text. They implore Jesus not to begin their torment before the appointed time. But instead permit them to go into the herd of pigs. Again, about 2,000 pigs. So the unclean spirits want to go to the unclean animals. Jesus permits it. And once they're there, demons do what demons do. They cause destruction. The pigs all rush headlong into the, into the water and are drowned. Last thing I want you to see are polar opposite responses. Polar opposite responses. These herdsmen rush to the city, they rush to the countryside to tell people what's happened. I imagine they first went to their boss's house. They probably first went to the people who own the pigs. They're going to say, 
Josiah, you're never going to believe what's just happened. Hopefully it wasn't Josiah because that would be a Jewish name and Jewish people didn't raise pigs. Frank, you'll never believe what's, what's happened. I don't know if that's a Roman name or not, but we'll call him Roman. You'll never believe what's happened. And so all these people from the city, from the country, all began to come out and see what's happened. And they found this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, the position of a disciple, clothed and in his right mind. Verse 35 was their response. Verse 35 says they became frightened. Verse 37 says again, they were gripped with great fear. Now we, if we were just reading down through this, we may have expected this to end with, they saw what had happened. They began to glorify and praise God. They were terrified, but they, they were so thankful for the work that God had done in this man's life. They invited Jesus back to their city. They had revival services. They set up a tent. They had uh, uh, musicians come in. And for, for, for a couple of weeks, Jesus stayed and he preached and he taught and people got saved. There was great revival. That's what we might expect. But they didn't do that. What was the response? Please leave. Please leave. Now, that doesn't surprise him. It may surprise us. But I think their, their response warrants some contemplation. But at this point, I, I just suffice to say, this is not dissimilar from other people's responses when they, saw, when they got a glimpse of the holiness of Christ. For instance, in Luke chapter 5, and verse 8, you remember, uh, we've, we've stated that, but it's been some weeks back, Jesus saw Peter and them out in the boat, and he said, Hey, uh, cast down your net over there. And he said, well, we've, been, we've been fishing all night. We didn't catch anything. He said, cast out your net for a catch. And Luke said, or Peter says, and this is my paraphrase, well, because it's you, I'll do it. But I think he's probably rolling his eyes, at least inwardly, when he's doing it, because what does a carpenter know about fishing when the fisherman doesn't know? They cast out the net, what happens? They pull up the net, they had so many fish, the boat begins to sink. They call over other boats, and that boat begins to sink. And what is Peter's response? Luke chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But when Peter, Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, verse 6, uh, Jesus took some of the disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He, he peeled back some of the, uh, so, so they could see, some of his glory, he is transfigured before them, the Bible says. The Father began to speak from heaven. It says, when the disciples heard this, when they heard the Father, they fell down, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Luke chapter 8, verse 25, we read about this two weeks ago. Jesus out on the boat with the disciples. Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus stands up, rebukes the wind and the waves. Everything becomes still and they're amazed. And, and he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that even that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and Trambus road filled the temple, and, and so on and so forth. And I saw the, the seraphim flying around with six, they had six wings, two covered their feet, two covered their, uh, their uh, the two they flew, and so on and so forth. And they, they cried out one to another, Holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. Verse 5 says, Isaiah saw this, and he says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
This is, a, this is the response of people all throughout Scripture. When they get a glimpse of God and His holiness, people are terrified. You remember even, even the, uh, when, when the angels showed up when Jesus was born, what did they have to say? Don't be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy. And, and, and that's why one of the reasons I'm pretty skeptical of a lot of the things that you see on TV and in some of the, some of the meetings you know, people say that they, they've had this experience with God and, and their response is laughing uncontrollably. Or they, they shake their head or they slur their speech and they, they stumble around like they're drunk. You don't see that in Scripture. When people see, when, when they get a glimpse of God and His holiness, they recognize their sinfulness and, and it produces terror because they are sinful and God is holy. That's what happened with these people. They, they, they got a glimpse of what Christ could do. They say, Please leave. But at the other end of the spectrum, this man begged Jesus to accompany him. And I think it's so fascinating because when you think about all these other people that came and said, Jesus, I'll come follow you. I'll, I'll come follow you. Jesus said, I, um, you know, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but some man has no place to lay his head. And, and he calls another man. He says, come follow me. He says, okay, but first let me go bury my father. So the dead bury their own dead. And here's a man that comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to go with you. And what does Jesus say? Nope. Nope. He didn't say, don't be my disciple. He said, don't come with me. Because what have these people just done? They said, Jesus, get out. And what did Jesus do? This is the only time that the Bible records Jesus ever went to this place. They ran him off, but... He left a witness. And this, this witness was to go out and tell the people in the city the great things that God had done for him. Now think about this. Jesus had done all this teaching. He said, we're going to go over to the other side. They head out onto the lake, go through this big storm. Get to where we read about today. Land of the Gerasenes, Gatherings. Has this intervention with this man frees him from demonic possession the people say get out just gets on the boat and he leaves he makes this big trip well in this case actually for two guys one we read about in in depth he made a special trip just for them now what does that show us about jesus well one of the things it tells us is that it's kind of like the the 99 sheep and, and the one that goes off and is lost, the shepherd goes after that one. It shows us his, his absolute, total, complete, undeniable, indisputable sovereignty and authority, not only over the, the natural world that we saw last time with the storm, but also over the supernatural world that we have with the demons. Just his presence brought fear to quite possibly thousands of demons. With a single word, he determined what they could and could not do. They begged him. They didn't say, Jesus, um, since you're saying we've got to go, we're just going to go over there to those swine. They begged him what they could do. God and the devil are not on equal footing. The devil can only do what God permits. And with a single word, there, there, it wasn't that he was, he was sold on the idea. He determined what they could, what they couldn't do. It shows us his holiness, which resulted in, in the people driving him away. But I think in there it shows us, too, that God will not always strive with man. 
Sometimes people think, I'm going to come to God when I want, when I want, the way I want, the manner I want, the time of life I want. I'm going to come on my own terms. They may know that God's convicting them of their sin. They may know that Christ is the only way of salvation, and yet they reject Him. They say, well, one of these days. One of these days, not today. I've got too much stuff going on. I've got, I've got school I'm doing. I've got, I've got jobs. I've got family. And so they reject Him. Christ will do to people today what He did with these people. They said, get out. We don't want any part of you. And Jesus left them. They rejected Him, and He left There's no biblical record of him ever coming back. Listen, don't reject Christ another day longer. Because if you'll come to God, you'll do it on his terms, his way. And what is that way? Jesus said, I am the way. Not a way, not the best way. He said, I am the way, the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You'll come, to, you'll come to Christ, you'll come to the Father through Jesus Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. That is the only way you'll get saved. And again, I plead with you, put your faith in Christ today for salvation. Want to stand with me as a musician comes. And as you stand, I ask you, bow your heads and close your eyes. And with nobody looking around, I just want to encourage you. Maybe you have a friend or a family member that is not where they need to be with the Lord. Maybe they're not a believer at all. Lift those people up in prayer. Maybe you have some friend, family member, co-worker who's out in the far country. They're, they're a believer, you, you're reasonably sure, but they're not living like they, they need to be. Pray for that person. Maybe that person's you. Maybe you're not where you need to be. Maybe you're not a Christian. Some people may think that that they'll just they can just come any old time. Jesus said in John chapter 6, no one can come to the Father, can come to me except the Father draw him. You'll come his time, his way, or you don't come. Say, Pastor, that's too narrow. It's gracious that he gives anyway. Because we don't deserve it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we study the scriptures, we don't get a picture of a weak God that's struggling to overcome Satan. We thank you that we see a sovereign, powerful, holy Savior in whom has been granted all authority in heaven and on earth. There's no struggle. There's no difficulty. And just as 
When you spoke in creation, you speak, and the devil goes no further. And God, many times we don't understand why certain things happen. Don't understand difficulties, don't understand pain, and we may never this side of heaven. But God, we thank you that even in the midst of our difficult times, your grace is sufficient. You're near to the brokenhearted. And God, we lift up those people in our lives that, that need your touch, that they're not where they need to be with you. We pray that you draw them to yourself. And God, I pray for each of us because we can all draw closer to you. Help us to, uh, to walk closer by your side. We thank you for your graciousness in giving us a way for salvation. God, help us not take those things for granted. And if there's somebody maybe who's hearing me today, maybe this is the first time they've ever heard the gospel, that they are a sinner against you, but that Christ died on the cross for sin, it was buried on the third day, rose again, and that if we'll but trust in him for salvation, that you will save us. God, if there's somebody who's never done that, I pray that you would convict their hearts and let them put their faith in you today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.